And so I just want to keep you on the spot for just a second. I think one of the things that, that um, a lot of us struggle with when we're, we're thinking about AI, and in many respects, it feels like it's just an extension of analytics. It's, it, it's just an extension of algorithms. How is what you're talking about here different from what you would have been doing a year or two ago? Uh, I think it's just it's deeper and more complex. It's, you know, the, it's uh, you know, a straightforward linear regression versus something where we have to actually train a model to understand something deeper than what is on the very surface of, uh, of the data. Great. Sam? I, I would build on that last part. I think in some ways it is just a progression of going from basic data collection to increasing uses of regression and more and more complicated versions of regression to, um, to a place where you have... Um, so sort of fewer and fewer humans involved in those decisions. You're not you're not selecting the variables, but instead the machines are selecting the variables for you. Um, the, the trade-off there is the same trade-off we've been balancing the whole time, which is you understand less and less about what's happening because it seems to be more and more of a of a superpower that no one can understand. That that's how that's how many people right now look at basic regression, right? That 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 seems novel to to a whole bunch of folks that that there's four or five variables and that will spit out a prediction of what will happen and that you think that prediction works this well. Uh, this is just that uh, to the extreme. And But increasingly, like, this is where we're going. This is where this happens all the time. And we take these things for granted in our in our daily lives and in our in our roles and whatever organization you are, that, um, that there's a decision support system behind it that is often uh, surely you can't describe and often many people uh, in your organization can't describe. But over time, you get increasingly comfortable with the predictive value of this. And at the end of the day, that's what you really care about is how to find the highest predictive value. Well, for all you data nerds out there, that was the man, the myth, the legend. He was in the house, Sam Hinkie, not literally, not technically. That was actually a clip from... Uh, him speaking at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference up in Boston on the panel, is AI the answer? They weren't talking about Iverson, but they were going into artificial intelligence and asking if that's the next phase within the NBA and sports and beyond. You heard first Ben Alomar give his answer to how analytics was different from AI, and then Sam Hinkie went into it and just gave this brilliant explanation of where we are headed, not only in sports, uh, but in society as a whole. So for you dystopian out there that have a glasses half empty view, it may scare you for more of us rainbow unicorn type views, those who are positive glasses to half full. It was exciting, exhilarating to hear about the possibilities of where we are headed um, in this revolution that's going to hit within the next decade of AI, not only in sports, but uh, in all aspects of our society. Uh, for those of you who haven't Listen to a pod before. My name is Dave Tippett. I'm the chief content curator at Shades of Orange website, www.shadesoforange.us. Uh, we encourage you to check out our stuff there as we have a lot more than, than what's talked about. We only allude to it on this pod, but we go a lot deeper on the actual website itself. But on the pod today, we're going to take a deep dive into day two of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference up in Boston that happened last weekend. We already uh, went through a recap of day one. If you haven't checked out that pod, I encourage you to go back and check that out. But today, uh, there was it was the cream de la cream of the conference. I felt like there were so many good panels, just too many 
to go through, in fact. And so we'll try to keep this as tight as possible. But I do want to give you a sense of flavor an understanding of the depth. And just there's so many different layers. If you haven't dived into the Sloan Analytics, any of their videos before, uh, you can check that out at 42 Analytics, their YouTube uh, site, or you can go to our website. We have a lot of different pieces on the conference itself, but there's so much good stuff if you're hoops of if you're a fan of hoops that you'll want to definitely check out. So let's just jump right in. The first panel of the day was just the facts. It was Rachel Nichols from The Jump, the host of The Jump on ESPN. She was the moderator. You had Steve Ballmer, who's the co-founder of Ballmer Group and owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, formerly of Microsoft, multi-billionaire. You have Nate Silver, who again is a legend in his own right in this, as a statistician, uh, the founder of 538.com. And they were on a panel together just going through how facts are used from their different perspectives. The opening question was uh, to Steve Ballmer. He was asked when buying the Clippers, did you use data analysis? Ballmer did say he took quite a bit of look at the data and the key factor for him, it's interesting to think, look at these thought processes, especially that some of these billionaires have and what goes into their mind. But he said the key one, the one piece of data that stood out more than anything was uh, that if he were to sell the organization Foreign buyers really like the idea that it's in Los Angeles and that's a destination city. He still commutes from Seattle to go to the games, but he felt like that was a good fit for where he was in life and uh, just it, the resale value of it would be great. Nate Silver did say in re retrospect that the buy of the Clippers looks like a good deal now. He said that when you look at sports teams buyers, uh, they're kind of like high-end fine art buyers. The market's extremely limited, but as long as the NBA keeps doing great, you're going to get really good prices and a rate of return on your investment um, into a franchise. I did want to go to, I won't go on a whole lot of rabbit trails today, but I did want to hit one quick side note about this um, and what Nate was alluding to with the NBA being in such a great position right now. Uh, there was a Forbes piece that came out recently that said that the average NBA team is worth a record $1.65 billion, which is actually up 22% from the previous year. And that every team in the NBA for the first time is now worth a billion dollars, at least a billion dollars. Um, the, the franchise values, they've tripled over the past five years. So just the NBA is in, in a really good place. I just want to read a quick quote from that article. It says, quote, it's not outrageous anymore to envision a sports world in which NBA teams are worth more than their NFL counterparts. Investors believe that the NBA has far greater potential to grow overseas than the NFL which is struggle beyond the United States. NBA revenue outside the U.S. is growing at a rate in the high teens annually. The average NFL franchise is worth $2.5 billion, 52% more than the NBA average typical NBA team. But that spread has been more than halved in the past five years. The NBA is already selling at higher multiples. Recent deals for the Brooklyn Nets and Houston Rockets value the teams at roughly eight times their regular season revenue, whereas NFL franchises are worth close to six times their revenue. It goes on to talk about, the article goes on to talk about how China, uh, where at least 300 million people are playing, uh, they have a, a five-year deal over there to carry games that's worth more than $800 million. Um, they have 34 media and marketing partners in China alone and 144 million followers on social media, more than any other sport in China. And uh, they did say that in that article that NBA China, which is a subsidiary of the NBA, was launched 10 years ago, and it's worth more than $4 billion now. So anyways, the NBA does look bright. I know there was a 
part of the reason I bring this out, it's a little pet peeve of mine. Last year during September, I think it was the fall, there was an ESPN, I felt like it was an alarmist article by Brian Winhurst and uh, Zach Lowe was actually part of that that piece, which I have a tremendous respect for Zach Lowe. He's one of the best in the business. But they recounted the fact that 14 NBA teams had lost money. Part of the reason I felt like this was alarmist is that uh, Winhurst didn't contextualize that the documents obtained by ESPN were strictly focused on basketball operations. You have uh, many of these ownership groups. There's so many different levels to this and how you could not just looking at a snapshot of one year is a good picture of the health of any organization, but there's so many of these ownership groups that have arenas, which they play in, which revenues generated through concerts and so many other non-basketball events that are, aren't, weren't included in these figures. And so anyways, if you hear someone saying spouting off that the NBA is in trouble from one little report, it's actually the complete opposite. There is no other sports league right now that is the envy of of the eye of, of all the professional sports leagues um, in the United States and, and where it's headed. All right, back to the panel. Uh, Rachel Nichols asked Balmer about trading Blake Griffin to the Pistons, which uh, Balmer had an interesting answer there. He said, when I started with this team, I had a guy who got one guy who got all the points, one guy who got all the assists, and one guy who got all the rebounds. He says, but the modern NBA today, you need players that get a distribution and a combo of those stats across the board, which you look at his team now, and that's kind of, besides DeAndre Jordan, that's kind of what he's going for. Um, it doesn't seem like a superstar he has anymore, but it'll be interesting to see if that philosophy works or not. Ballmer went on to say another thing that he talked about was his philosophy on tanking. He didn't like tanking at all. He felt like a bottoming out is a really dangerous game. He felt like it was being dismissive to your fans to take a big step back. And part of it, he says, is just, in, especially in Los Angeles, he felt like the free agent route is a lot easier route to go and better route to go um, because it is a destination site for a lot of free agents um, rather than trying to tank and rebuild through the draft. Uh, Nate Silver did chime in. He said the process is a high risk and high reward strategy. They went on to talk about politics and public policy stuff because Balmer has this USA facts project. I won't get into all that, but Balmer did make a a good point about data and how they use it with the Clippers. He talked about how some of the health data is the most important data, Uh, new arena, salary cap planning. He talked about it being like a big chess game and it's a new kind of like numeric chess and data is very influential on how they manage all of that. Nate Silver went on to make a really pertinent point that I felt like undergirded a lot of what's going on, especially the media level. This isn't talked about unless you go into the really smart pieces, but Silver said the NBA is a league where private conversations are ahead of the public conversations. Um, A lot of the stuff that they think the public thinks isn't measurable is actually being measured. Pretty sure Nate was referring to the second spectrum. Um, Those cameras uh, used to be sport VU that measure thousands upon thousands of movements on the court during any given minute of a game, spacing, all of that kind of stuff. All of that, as you went into this conference, you found out that that kind of stuff is being measured and utilized the data from that at a level that we don't have access to as fans. So this whole debate about analytics is kind of silly because it's not only gone to analytics, gone past that using AI and some of these artificial intelligence and some of these organizations um, to gain a competitive advantage. And so it's it'll only go forward from this. Um, 
Uh, well, Balmer too, just so you know, he said I, that's what he wants the fan experience to be like with these goggles in a few years where people can understand assist percentages when they can watch uh, the entire game from the perspective of DeAndre Jordan. It should be able to be simulated in the next three to four years. If you haven't gone, you've seen our piece on the NBA actually had a technology summit at the All-Star Weekend, and we did a curated piece on that. And we talked some about this Magic Leap product that the NBA is partnering with with virtual reality that uh, that I think that's what Ballmer was referring to. And you'll want to go into that and check that out because it is exciting. Just the level in the next 10 years where the fan experience is going to be for an NBA fan and how you will be getting into all of this stuff that takes your viewing to another level. Uh, they finished up this whole panel with the whole GOAT debate of the best player using data in the NBA. I know this is kind of like... <laughs> Red versus blue, Republican versus Democrat, when you bring up the whole Jordan versus LeBron debate. But this is what Nate Silver said. He said, the real question is, does eight outweigh six? And my intuition is that LeBron is better. He said, I think the NBA has come a long ways. I think if Michael Jordan were to come back today, he wouldn't be as dominant. LeBron is starting to lap Jordan in win shares, and he is the best player in the league at the age of 33. He, Nate said he would love to see Someone do uh, take the time to do advanced defensive metrics on all of Jordan's games and see what that what the numbers look like compared to LeBron's. I rated this panel as the number ten panel discussion uh, that I attended. It was interesting because Nate Silver is always interesting, and Balmer had some interesting things to say as well. But it's a good place. It was a good place to start off the conference on day two. The next panel that I went to was entitled Put a Ring on It, Building a Champion. This was number nine on my top 10 list of panels at the conference. It had quite a few well-known persons on the panel. Topping it off, you had Sue Bird. She's one of my all-time favorite point guards. She played for the, or plays for the Seattle Storm. Uh, she's won championships at all different levels, WNBA, college, international competitions. You also had Chris Bosch, another champion with the Miami Heat, 11-time All-Star. You had Nick Casero, who's the director of player personnel for the New England Patriots. You also had Bill James of the infamous Bill James Baseball Abstracts and the inventor of Sabermetrics. He's now a senior advisor to the Boston Red Sox. He's one of those guys who's been named by Time Magazine as the 100 most influential people in the world. Mitch Kupchak, former GM of the Lakers, supposedly now in the running for the Hornets GM job opening. And then you had Jackie McMullen, who was the moderator. Uh, she's a journalist for ESPN, an award-winning journalist. So it, I'm not going to go through this entire panel, but I will give you some of the basketball highlights from it because it was all about, obviously, building a champion. Mitch Kupchak was asked, how has it changed in your day from using data to help make a dynasty to today? And Kupchak replied, he said that most data that came into the coach's office and coach's play books were from the box score. He said, now I was, for, he said he was fortunate to work with some guys who were early pioneers in using data in uh, ways that helped to gain a competitive advantage. Like Pat Riley had his own, created his own plus minus system that he used. And uh, when Kupchak was with Dean Smith, he said all the coaches in Dean Smith staff were math, math majors in college. He said that today, the way it's different is that the whole second spectrum thing that I was talking about, that video camera, a GPS tracking system that's changed the game today. And the information that's available is overwhelming. So it's all a matter of processing and utilizing that information that NBA team, all NBA teams have to 
get the right data and the right variables in there to gain the competitive advantage that you need. They did talk to Bill James and Nick Casero about some salary dynamics related to the MLB and NFL um, and creating dynasties. But like I said, I won't go into all that. They also asked Sue Bird um, about how analytics had been used in her career. And she talked about, it was interesting how Kevin Pelton from ESPN, uh, Seattle guy used to help the storm in a myriad of ways uh, with an analytical assessment. She said her head coach and Pelton would work together to figure out who certain college players in the draft would specifically help their team. They would do this whole assessment on what kind of role players they needed to complement the team and so on. And she talked a little bit about that, but then she went on to say that one of the ways, just some basic analytics has helped her. Uh, she noticed as she was shooting more threes, given basic stats about her shooting more threes and not being in the lane as much through from some of the analytics as she got older, uh, that she needed to make a conscious effort for, for her to be able to do that. And for her to be able to do that, that meant there had to be minutes that were cut on the court so that she could optimize her time on the court of making an intentional effort to get in the lane more to do what she does best. So that was just one practical example of a, from a player's perspective of how analytics can help to shape the way you think about your game and what you do in the game uh, time situations as well. Chris Bosch talked about how uh, his coach Spo, he honed in on certain statistics, things like team deflections. He said that was Spo really felt like that was a reflection of the energy that the team was bringing on any given game night. He said sometimes you would run into a buzzsaw. You would just run into a game, teams that would just knock you out no matter what you tried to do. And he he referenced San Antonio that when we went there, they always seemed to crush us because they were ready for us. As a Spurs fan, that was good for my heart to hear. You also had Jackie McMullen. She pointed out that in the 2014 finals, games three through five, she felt like were three of the greatest games played in the history of the finals um, when the Spurs averaged 120.8 points per game, 157 passes per game, and their true shooting percentage was 65.1%. She said they had to play perfect ball to beat the heat, which Spurs did. And that was just, again, fun to hear. Cause as a Spurs fan watching those, that finals was the best I've ever seen the Spurs play. And one of the best passing teams that I've ever seen in the NBA and the analytics back that up, at least for the, that three game stretch. Then you went into, uh, they went into Mitch Kupchak to talk some about how do you know when it's the end of the dynasty and when to make a change that whole Kobe uh, Shaq dynamic that happened back when he was GM he said, but the obvious thing is contracts in the NBA, they don't all line up the same. So your players continue to age and payrolls and salaries continue to grow. And so what, that's what you have to do is you have to make tough decisions about aging teams, especially when they're winning. Every year, owner Bus would have this quote about every year, you're not just putting one chip into the jar of aging, you're putting 12 chips because every, every year, every one of those players aged by one year. And uh, you just you have to make tough decisions as a result. He said, as far as the Kobe Shaq decision, he said it really came down to who are we going to get the most bang for our buck? Kobe was 24 at the time. We feel like his ceiling was super high. And so they obviously stuck with Kobe and the, and the rest is history. Again, a lot of more topics discussed in that panel, but for the sake of time and to keep us moving so I can get through some of my favorite panels were on this day. Uh, the next one panel that we're going to talk about is Take That for Data, Basketball Analytics. You had quite a few again on this panel. Um, you had Zach Lowe, senior writer and NBA analyst for ESPN, one of the best in the business. You had Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets, co-founder of the Sloan 
Sports Analytics Conference. You had Jalen Rose, former NBA player and current ESPN analyst. You had Mike Zarin, assistant GM, team counsel for the Boston Celtics and known throughout the analytics community for his astute analysis. And then you had Nick Wright, co-host of First Things First on Fox Sports, and he was the moderator of this panel. Now, this panel, it was pretty free-flowing. There was a lot of people jumping in and um, debating one another back and forth. And so I just, I'll give you a sense. I'll kind of go back with the names and it won't be verbatim of what the quotes were of these people, but you get the essence of who was on which side of the debate of, of the questions that Nick Wright was throwing out. Daryl Morey was asked to kick off the panel. He was asked about the value of the three versus the two. And is there any concern of everyone shooting um, too many threes in a game? And he says, more than anything, we're just concerned with how to win. So whatever that takes, he says, still about ball movement, spacing, drives to the hoop. He says, the talent with players having more space makes it more interesting. He says, it just makes the game more interesting to watch. And he believes it's a more beautiful game as a result. Uh, Mike Zarin piped in to say that NBA viewership is is at an all-time high. And then Zach Lowe, with his dry wit, said, it is annoying to some people. Uh, but they are all 40 and up, which is probably true. Nick Wright then went on to ask, he asked, is there going to be a wave of guys like Steph Curry coming into the league? And if power forward type players were going to go away um, from the NBA, Jalen Rose piped in then, and he's, he made the point that there's only been about 4,000 people that have played in the NBA, that it's a boutique league, but that you're not necessarily going to have the four position go away. He said Minnesota has some of those players that um, are fours and fives, the center position. And even though he doesn't think the center position is extinct, he just thinks that there's a different type of center that is coming into the NBA. Uh, Maury jumped in and he said, I think that what's really going to change is the single skills guys more than anything. They're going to get weeded out of the league. And he said that he felt like from his perspective, that was a good thing because you want multi-skilled guys on the court. It makes for a better, more interesting, more multifaceted game. Nick Wright then asked, has the game gotten smarter? If if everyone has the same objective skill set, if everyone's improved, they have understand the value of first-round picks even more, has the degree of difficulty gone up for gaining that whole competitive advantage thing we talked about? Mike Zarin, he did say it's a pretty illiquid market. You could find more bargains in the past than you can today, but you still the, the thing is you still can make trades with teams because teams are in different positions. They're at different points of the growth spectrum on um, the growth curve of where they're at. And so there's still possibilities where teams can, both teams can strengthen by making trades. Uh, Maury said that one of the fun- fundamental issues we have in the NBA is that the only currency we have is draft picks. Then Nick Wright piped in with an interesting uh, question. He says, does the league allow for forward thinking about trading cap space for one season for one pick? And he said, I know no other sport allows it. Maury thought that was a fantastic idea. Uh, Mike Zarin said that guys in our office, he likes the, they like the idea of the lottery ping pong balls being tradable. Um, so that instead of the currency of trades now being second round draft picks, the, the greater odds of, of getting the first pick in the draft would be through the ping pong ball trades. Uh, Zach Lowe said that'd be too much work for the league office. Uh, Jalen Rose was asked, and Jalen Rose is kind of middle of the road when it comes to being a skeptic of analytics, but he was asked, what do the numbers tell you? He said when the initial wave came, the analytics wave came, it went over people's heads. Um, I think it's found its way back to a happy medium. 
He says it's not the only tool to measure a player, but it is a tool. He said certain stats matter, how fast players get side to side with a cut and show uh, when players slow down. But he said you can't measure someone's heart, the intangibles of them. He says former players with analytics aren't as keen to this. And there's almost a pyramid of information as you get higher up in the pyramid. There's a lot less diversity on GMs, on ownership groups. And so players are starting to try to understand analytics to speak the owner's language, especially if they want to get in that game of being in front offices. Zach Lowe jumped in. I think he made a really good point. He says, what you're trying to do with all of this is you're trying to understand the numbers deeply and watch the games. And he says, when numbers don't match up with the eye test, that's when you start looking deeper at why that is. He said that he gave an example, Paul Millsap being a great example of per 36 being important. That's his career. It showed that he was doing well. And then when he got the opportunity to play more, he flourished. Daryl Morey did counter to that. Interestingly enough, uh, the per 36 stat, he said that doesn't take into account foul trouble or fatigue. It doesn't factor in who's certain guys we can guard. Um, so just uh, that seemed to be a theme throughout the conference. Just um, you got to factor in. Sometimes these stats look better because they are playing on certain players, um, which is just another level of analytics. It's taking into account who they're guarding and who they're not. Um, they were asked about the chemistry aspect versus analytics. How do you balance this? And the, Mike Zarin made the point again about the tracking cameras um, that we talked about already. He says that has totally changed the game. He says, think about skills on our teams now. We can measure them and break them down by 500 left-sided pick and rolls, when they went under, what was good to that. We get every single action and reaction within the game of basketball is measured and broken down and analyzed. And so that's where NBA is at, even though that's not what's being discussed. Uh, it's the old box score type stats that are being discussed by much, much of the media today. Again, some of them have gone into the advanced analytics and are starting to talk about that, but it's even beyond that now where the teams are and what they're discussing at team level. Zach Lowe did say you can really come close to quantifying almost everything now. And there was an interesting article I read not too long ago. It was a Wall Street Journal article on how an Israeli startup changed the NBA. And it was all about the Sport VU technology that's been used now. It's second spectrum. But they talked about the first six adapters of that technology in the NBA where the three Texas teams, you had Dallas, the Mavs, Houston Rockets, San Antonio Spurs, you had the Golden State Warriors. Oklahoma City Thunder and the Boston Celtics. And uh, when they adopted it over a decade ago, um, since then, in the last decade, the six teams with the most wins in the NBA are those six teams. So they felt like there's a cause and effect with that. But it is interesting to see that teams are now using uh, this system and how this is so prevalent in how they analyze games and how they try to get that competitive advantage. They were asked, is athleticism becoming less important? Daryl Morey says it's actually more important. You need long athletes at all five positions now. Zach Lowe differed a little bit. He says it depends on how you define athleticism. Are we talking Stromile Swift, Draymond Green, Kyle Korver? Jalen Rose went on to say, after they talked about that a little bit, he went on to make the bold statement that football dominated popularity of the American public for so long, but these days are over, he says. He says LeBron has 40 million social media followers, more than all the NFL players put together. NBA players have a healthy respect for the commissioner. There's not dealing with opioids, steroids, concussions, all these different issues. 
And Daryl Morey said he agreed with Rose on that. He says, we are winning the war for talent. So that is why the league will continue to get more and more athletic. And I think, you know, just jumping in there, you look at this draft class that's coming out in the top five or six drafts, these bigs who are so mobile athletically on both ends of the court um, can move side to side, has that versatility, that wingspan, all that stuff and can shoot and can do what handle the ball and all that stuff that that is going to make the, the NBA just a more athletic and eventually go back from small ball to tall ball. But guys who are very skilled players, uh, that's just my opinion. Not more. didn't say all of that. A little later, a pertinent point was made that the two highest scoring teams are the single most efficient offensive teams in the history of the sport. Uh, the Warriors right now are having a record assist rate where I, the Rockets are near the bottom in assist uh, rate and total passes. Maury jumped in to talk about how that's a good thing, that they aren't the same, that a lot of their scoring opportunities comes off of first or second actions. And Houston, you know, they've led the league in ISO plays. Maury says that's taking, we're taking what the defense gives us. And James Harden is one of the greatest ISO players ever in the history of the game. Jalen Rose jumped in. He made the point that the dynamics of how you play is based on the skill set of players of your best players. And the best players in Golden State, they play off the ball. That's why they they have some of the greatest shooters in the history of the league. And that's why they, they play the way they do. And then, like Maury was saying, the reason they play the way they do is because of of Harden um, and now Paul, of who they have. Nick Wright then asked the provocative question, how many of the top 100 players are not in the NBA today? Insinuating that most of the top 100 are in the NBA that's getting better and better. He also made the point that Jesse Owens – wouldn't qualify for the Olympics now with his times, even though he was the greatest athlete back then, that they were just getting better and better. There was a lot of back and forth on this. Jalen Rose advocated for old school ballers, saying that the conversation, the era conversation is always going to benefit the current players. They have more technology, more things at their disposal, health, all that kind of stuff. I tend to agree with Nick Wright on this one. I just philosophically, I'm of the opinion that this is a big, Big picture topic, but I believe that the arc of the universe, uh, not just the moral arc, um, but it's moving towards more complexity, depth, and unity. And the game of basketball is no exception to this rule. Inevitably, the whole of players and systems, they'll build on the previous foundations, which you've got to have a deep sense, a healthy respect for and appreciation for everything that they've gone through. The success the players have today would not be possible without the, of what was done in the past. But the game is going to just get better and better and more and more complex schematics are going to happen. That'll the game will literally be marching toward perfecting the game itself. I know co-host senior Griffey was here. You'd probably disagree with me. Um, there's probably some of you who do, but it's an interesting thought experiment, an interesting philosophical conversation and debate to have as it relates to the NBA as a whole. Again, for the sake of time, I'm going to actually just breeze through the next, panel. It was called Business Analytics 2.0, Redefining the Sports Business. And the only thing I want to say about that is that they they talked about the most critical thing you need in relation to analytics and getting the word out and being able to use that within your organization is you have to have people who can communicate the data effectively um, and not only effectively, but clearly and in concise ways. And that just was a theme that ran throughout the conference about uh, being able to articulate this in ways that make sense, that bring meaning to an organization and how important this is. And that was just really hammered home within that panel. So now we're to the panel that just really blew my mind. It was called Is AI the Answer? The one I alluded to at the beginning of this pod. 
It had Ben Alomar, the director of sports analytics at ESPN. He's also uh, the founder of Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports. It's the first uh, peer-reviewed academic journal for research in sports analytics. Smart dude. Uh, you had Sam Hinkey, who I mentioned, former GM of the 76ers. He really helped to launch this whole basketball analytics movement. Smart, smart guy. Then you had Patrick Lucy, who's the director of artificial intelligence at Stats. Um, prior to Stats, Patrick worked at Disney Research, where he conducted research into automatic sports broadcasting using large amounts of spatial temporal tracking data. You had Martin Reeves. He's the director of the Boston Consulting Group, senior partner, managing director. He was also a global director for their think tank on business strategy. And then finally, you had Paul Michaelman. He's the editor-in-chief of MIT Sloan Management Review. He was the moderator. Michaelman started off talking about how AI is dominating tech strategy today uh, that has the potential to transform our lives and how we live. But he wanted to start off with what is the common definition of AI, of artificial intelligence? Patrick Lucy said, AI, it's tricky. It's a tricky definition, but at its core, it's just technology that emulates humans. So, for example... Alexa, the Amazon product, that would be a rudimentary example of AI. Uh, Martin Reeves, he was asked about what's on a broad level, what's going on within the AI in the world. And he said that their group has looked at AI in 3000 companies. 85% of those companies believe that they will have a competitive advantage using AI in the next five years. But he said the truth is only 5% of those companies have a real intense investment in it and that will probably get that competitive advantage. Ben Alomar had some interesting things. They asked him about short-term, long-term, what they're doing, uh, what's going on with AI within sports. And he says right now in the short term, there's a lot of deep learning going on. Things like spatial data, very uh, granular things like pick and rolls, who's guarding who, where the ball is hitting the rim on the shots is already being used via AI. How that, what that means and how do you have to adjust to, to make decisions to optimize lineups, all that kind of stuff as a result. He said the long-term possibilities, though, of AI, it's capped only by our imaginations. So some of the stuff that may happen as a result of AI are things like that seem science fiction type stuff, or we'll be able to download Sam Hinkie or Daryl Morey's brain to understand the thought processes of how good GM's brains work um, one day. He said right now at ESPN, what we're doing in the short term is we're working with AI specifically related to spatial data. So we want to understand shot quality in the NBA. So we all know, everyone knows the difference between shot quality of a two-pointer and three-pointer and, and and the statistics related to that. But now the questions aren't just two versus threes, but what kind of shot was it? Did you dribble five times before you shot off the dribble? Were you able to create your own shot? How wide open were you in a catch and shoot? Where the defender was in relation to space in front of you, were they two, three feet, feet, three feet, four feet back? They're gathering all this kind of data and they're trying to find what we talked about yesterday, that whole pattern recognition thing, and pull things out of that to best understand the best shooting practices so that it can prove shots at a higher level across the NBA. Then he was asked, Ben was asked, is AI an extension of analytics or is it different? And that's where the opening quote that I gave you at this pod, Ben, you know, again, to kind of reiterate what he said. He says it's deeper and more complex. It's not just a straightforward linear regression. We have to train the model to identify stuff that is deeper on the sur than surface data. And that's where you heard Sam Hinkie jump in at the beginning of this pod. And he said he built on that difference that you're talking about. You're going from basic data collection 
to uses of regression and more and more complicated uses of regression in a place where you have fewer and fewer humans involved in those decisions. And so that's where you heard him say, like, the, the trade-off is we're going to understand less and less of what's going on. And it's going to seem like a superpower, <laughs> like a, um, that's where these machines are going to scare people. But because now the people are even just scared of looking at basic regression and saying how finding out the highest predictive value from that they're they're scared by that this is going to take that to a whole new level hinky then was asked about him teaching at stanford and he's investing in this space in silicon valley hinky talked a little bit about that he's just a real interesting dude on so many levels i can see why having never heard hinky speak before but why so many people admire him because he is um, a smart guy not just for rebuilding an organization but on so many different levels patrick lucy made the point that you know, we're just starting to get to know what data can do and what it can't. And ultimately, it's going to come to the point where it's going to be an entire reconstruction of the game. And we are just scratching the surface of the potential of how it can be used um, to change the game and better the game. Uh, Martin Reeves said, as far as in relation to this whole AI thing, we're, we are still in the early game of this. He says talent and educational leadership, that typically is your first competitive advantage, but going towards intelligent organizations as a whole, whoever the first movers are in this, that effect will be huge for those organizations and they will have a huge competitive advantage, not just on the field, but in fortune 500 companies and so on. They were asked, what about the predictive qualities of AI long-term five to seven years out? And Sam Hickey said as his answer to that question, he says, it's really close to unanswerable because he said, it's much easier to predict what will go away than what appears. He made the point, he quoted Kevin Kelly, which if any of you haven't read Kevin Kelly, just futurist, co-founder of Wired Magazine, pick up one of his books. Phenomenal dude, one of times, uh, most influential, 100 most influential people also. But Ke- Kelly made this point. He said at the turn of the century, in the 20th century, you to 95% of, of Americans were farmers. Uh, but he said, if you would have made the point that only 2% would be farmers, they would people would be baffled. But they wouldn't understand what they would become. They wouldn't understand that they'd become graphic designers or analytics analysts or all the stuff that's done today in the service industry. And so it's almost impossible to say what will come, but you can say where we're headed and you can see that with futurist type mentality. Martin Reeves did say that there is a fear out there in the public that everything is being automated. But he said the whole deal is you want a decision that gives you a better prediction in context of your value and missions. That's the whole purpose of using AI in the first place. He said AI is not about predictive models. It's about decision support, not automated decision making. So you have the people who will guide you in your mission and in your values. And then you want the data that will help you to get to that place that you want to get to. Paul Michaelman, he said there's really two schools of thought around AI. He said the next cycle of technology adoption, like Kevin Kelly, who has a positive outlook on this. But there's another school of thought that what we're doing is we're really replacing the human mind and AI is actually more threatening. Ben Alomar said the new adapters will like it, but traditionalists won't. He said all technology obviously can be used for good or evil. The question of it is harnessing it. Uh, the whole black box argument that we use things we don't understand all the time. And that's the truth. We do that even today. We don't care if we don't understand it. We care. We trust people giving to us and the outcomes that it will benefit us. And that's the real questions that you have to explore when you're doing this whole AI conversation. Sam Hinkie said the bottleneck, and I really thought this, again, that's quote about communication was really important. He said the bottleneck 
for anything new is your ability to communicate it. It's your job to share it in a way that other people can understand it. How do you anchor it to things they already use? And so it's just bridging that gap. Just a really good point for us to think about anyone who has a desire to further your organization. How are you anchoring it to things that people already use that aren't threatening, um, that can help take these incremental steps towards something that'll make AI or analytics itself make it a better organization. I love this next quote that Patrick Lucy made. He said, we are out of the age of information and we are now in the age of recommendation. Uh, there's so much information out there, but that's that the whole content curated website that we're doing at Shades of Orange is all about recommending things that are worth your time, worth looking at the things that matter because there's just such a influx of information out there. You can't possibly get through it all. Well, enough of this futurist stuff. Let's go back to the past. Just a couple more panels that I want to talk to you about real quickly. Um, the next panel is Inventing Modern Basketball. It was with Daryl Morey, Shane Battier, Steve Nash, and Jack McCollum. McCollum is the author of Seven Seconds or Less. He was a Sports Illustrated guy who uh, wrote this book about how the Phoenix Suns changed the game of basketball. So I'm just going to jump into the panel. They they did start off the panel with asking uh, Nash as if he saw that what was happening when he was on that team in the 04-05 Suns team as a tipping point in how it changed the game of basketball. Nash said, you know, I did. I can't remember a lot of the details, but he said a lot of what happened in Phoenix was pretty organic. I love to push the ball and get guys easy opportunities. We had a lot of great runners and finishers. He said Mike's brilliance, Mike D'Antoni, who was the coach, was allowing it to take place. He said a lot of uh, coaches would have found a place to stop that. He saw the direction it was going. He thought, saw that he could refine it, give principles to it. And what really came out of that was like an organized band. He said the whole deal was uh, with the pace and space was to spread the court as far as possible. And they all worked together. He said, Mike D'Antoni was relentless in making sure they were right in the very, very, very corner of the court when when spacing, because um, it's a huge deal on on how it can open up the space and what can be done as a result. And so now, obviously, that is the template for so many teams today and where the NBA is headed as a whole. Shane Batty talked about when he went to the Suns from the Grizzlies to the Suns, you had you had Mike Fratello who had like a 7000 page playbook. And then you go to um, and he said Fratello's practices when you started off were always about how to double the post, the X, Y, Z trap. Um, and he said that we didn't concentrate on defending pick and rolls. But he said then when you came along and you tried to guard these these Suns guys, he said the emphasis was on the pick and roll and you had to make a decision. Amari Stoudemire is going to be rolling the basket. Are you And if you didn't stay with him, then you had a 40% three-point shooter who was rolling behind Amari, and you had to make a decision. Are you going to give up the dunk or going to give up the probability of an open three? And he said they just made – they took the game to a whole new level that really changed the game forever. Daryl Morey was asked about well, – he was at Boston at the time. Were you looking on and seeing that this was – seeing that this was going to forever change the game? And he says, I really wasn't. He said, this, the year the Suns beat us, though, I was um, with Van Gundy. Uh, he was trying to shrink the court, which was great for the 90s basketball. But the Suns offense was designed to beat that defense. And he said, I remember going in and seeing Jeff had a, his head on his desk and didn't know what to do one day because they got hammered by like 30 points. Um, and they just didn't know what to do. And he admitted that the closeout was impossible on them. And he said, that's when it really dawned on me that this was transformative, what the Suns were doing and how uh, it would transform the game. Maury talked about how you need the right personnel for Mike D'Antoni's game and understanding of the game. 
Mike was the first one who coined the term vertical spacing. So it's not just the horizontal on the court, but in the air. And that's really important in his offense as well. And he said, whenever Clint is out, that's when we struggle as a team. Clint Capella, he's talking about. And because teams can switch it up and hug up against us. And it's all about creating that vertical spacing as well. They were asked the question, have defenses gotten better that have caused teams to push out further and have to think quicker? Um, on the move. And Shane Battier said, yeah, they are different. The forearm shiver was legal back in the day. So the defenses had to evolve to be quick and active um, without being physical. And uh, Steve Nash said, yes, this led to versatile defender switching. That was unheard of when I play. Defenses have become more, much more schematic. Um, they have much more quick decision makings and you're ultimately playing like blackjack odds. You know what a player is going to do and what the odds are of what will hurt you and what won't this inventing modern basketball panel was a solid panel. Um, if you get a chance, definitely check it out on 42 analytics YouTube channel. There was another panel that I went to and call creating a new stat. And I don't have time to go into that because I really want to get to the last panel of the day, uh, which is trust the process, team building and rebuilding in the NBA, but creating a new stat is fascinating, especially if you're really into the geeky stuff about how this stuff happens and how it begins to transform the games. It was across all different industries, not just NBA, but MLB, NFL, et cetera. And so uh, if you get that chance to check that one out, definitely do. Well, the last panel of the day that I went to, and it was just the perfect way to end this whole conference, as I mentioned, was trust the process after uh, named after kind of what Sam Hinkey had done in Philadelphia. And on this panel, you had a pretty illustrious group of people. You had Howard Beck from Bleacher Report, uh, you had Chris Bosch from the Miami Heat. You had Lawrence Frank, the GM of the Los Angeles Clippers. David Griffin, the former GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And then Sam Hinkie, of course, former GM of Philly. And you had Steve Pagaluka, who is one of the owners of the Boston Celtics. So let's just jump right into the panel. Beck began the conversation by asking, what's success in your organization? You can't say championships. Uh, Lawrence Frank said it starts with ownership. So you have to be honest where you are as a team. We know our goal is obviously to win a championship. So we have to be moving in that direction. Also, the culture of what a team does, that is so very important in building a championship team. David Griffiths, he said the culture thing that Lawrence is talking about, he says that's the thing we took pride in uh, more than anything is to be able to tell each other what we needed to hear. We knew that we loved each other enough that we could trust that we were um, telling each other the right thing for the best of everyone in the organization. If you can do that, he said, you're building in the right direction. And it's got to be something you all enjoy doing. The love of the game has to be there. The joy has to be there. And that's where you start. Sam Hinkie talked about how Houston and Philly had different expectations. They were similar, very high, but they were in different places. And he said, what we talked about a lot was putting yourself in contention to have a shot. Not that, well, you have it, but can you at least make a final, be a final four team and maximize the probability of that over a time period? Because obviously with some teams, you're not going to get there in one year. You got to think through realistically, how do you get to that position to be a contender? They were then asked the question about what works consistently. Are there repeatable strategies a lot of times it seems like it's having two or three superstars. That's the main strategy in the NBA. Sam Hinkie said, well, the point of the whole exercise in Philly was to get that kind of talent because our philosophy was we have to find the big rocks first because they matter the most. And then we have to fit under the cap and all the other um, people that will be good fits with that. And you have to be able to carry that for a long time with several iterations. He said that really there's only three ways to do it. There's the draft. 
there's free agency, and there's trades. That's all we have to work with, those three level levers. And you're trying to pull on those levers all the time and figure out what are the right levers. Is it young players? Is it picks in the draft? Is it a blockbuster trade? How do you invest in these things? And how do you assess how they appreciate will appreciate over time? Beck asked David Griffin, was you consider if five years ago, if you didn't have the internet and you see where Philly is now and what they've done, you consider them a success? Griffin said, you can acquire a lot of young talent, not win. But then David Griffin said, the reason I would consider them success is they are winning and they have the flexibility going forward to continue to add pieces and continue to win. Celtics owner jumped in and he said, you know, he really kind of slammed the whole process. He tried to distance Hinky from like saying what he actually did and what the media said he did are two different things. But he slammed the whole process of using draft picks to try to rebuild through that. Um, he said the odds are statistically that you can't lose four or five years in a row. That's not the right strategy. He went off. You'll have to listen to it. It was a little contentious in the way he was talking. Well, hopefully you've gotten a great taste of what went on at the Sloan Sports Analytic Conference. Um, again, all of this is to heighten your enjoyment of the game. There's just so many different levels as you start to look at it, the layers below, just the, the common stuff that's talked on uh, from your TV analysts. Uh, there's so many more layers to it for fans that want to become more discerning in their viewing experience. And so that's what we want to do at Shades of Orange. We hope that you will continue to check out our site and all the things we offer at your disposal there. We will be going into a March Madness pods as uh, that is coming up. We will have some of the best practices on how to fill out your brackets in order to win uh, your pool money. And so you'll want to tune in that later this week and check that out. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And until next time. Take care.